0: Welcome back to the Residential College and the RC Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Griswold, RC grad from the class of 2007 with a major in Arts and Ideas in the Humanities and the RC Communications and Outreach Coordinator. I was walking down the hallway one day in September, and Cindy Sowers stopped me and told me about an RC alumna who was on campus, and she recommended that I reach out to her and interview her for this podcast. Her name was Carmen Bougan, and she was delivering lectures under the auspices of the Honors Department during the first half of the fall semester 2018. I reached out to Carmen and met with her multiple times over a week period. I felt an immediate connection with her, a poet whom I would learn grew up in Romania while her family, unbeknownst to her while a child, was under surveillance by the totalitarian regime of Nicolai Ceausescu. Her father was a resistor and wrote pro-democracy, anti-Ciausescu pamphlets on a typewriter that her parents buried in order to protect themselves. He eventually went to prison and was forced to divorce his wife in a sham public ceremony. Carmen managed to sneak around the secret police and contact the American embassy when she was 18, applying for refugee status. The family emigrated to Grand Rapids, Michigan in the fall of 1989. She would eventually go to Grand Rapids Community College, where she was mentored by poet and later Grand Rapids Poet Laureate David Cope, and she transferred to the University of Michigan and the residential college. Ken Michalowski and Cindy Sowers made particularly strong impacts on her, and she graduated summa cum laude with a creative writing major in 1996. Also while at Michigan, she won a Hopwood Award and a Cowden Memorial Fellowship for her poetry. She then earned her Master's in Creative Writing from Lancaster University and a Master's and Ph.D., both in English Literature, from Oxford University. She is the author of the poetry collections Crossing the Carpathians of 2004, The House of Straw, 2015, Releasing the Porcelain Birds, 2016, and the upcoming Lilies from America, out next month, which has already garnered the Poetry Book Society special commendation. Her memoir, Burying the Typewriter, 2012, was translated into several languages and earned high praise for its evocation of communist era Romania. The book was a BBC Radio 4 Book of the Week, a Waterstones Book Club choice, and won the Breadloaf Conference nonfiction prize. You'll hear excerpts of our conversations that lasted hours and hours and you'll hear samples from the lectures she gave on campus as the 2018 Helen DeRoy Professor in Honors. The titles of her lectures include On Poetry and the Language of Oppression, Poetry in Between Languages, On the Lyric I," and On Artistic Distance, which is where we'll begin.
1: How does one handle pain in writing? How does one handle deep suffering in writing? What is it required of the poet in order to give people the landscape of human suffering with lucidity, with precision, and with beauty? I've developed this concept called artistic distance, which is nothing more really than controlling yourself as a person Um, in order to be able to um, speak in a measured way. It seems very easy to do. It's very hard to achieve. And I want to read a bit from this lecture on artistic distance and the language of oppression. Um, This is a lecture which I also have given earlier this year in May at the University of Oxford. And the whole lecture is available as a podcast from the Life Writing Series at Wolfson College there um, at the university. Lately, I'm asking myself, how do we face loss with language? What happens when language is stolen from us? Can the lyric language which I create be coherent if I'm emotionally incoherent myself? What happens to the authorial voice when personal biography fuses with the lyric eye? What are the effects of writing on our well-being? I wrote the poem a birthday letter that takes its cue from one letter we have received from my father on his 50th birthday when he was still incarcerated. He had asked us to make a cake for him, but the poem was not meant to indict or to testify against the secret police in Romania or to function as anti-communist propaganda. The aim was to write myself out of pain, using the language of poetry, while bringing to life a moment that shows the uses and abuses of language. As a poet, I was looking for lessons that could be learned from this material, lessons about language. Lyric language itself gave me a sense that I can do something useful about dealing with a traumatic past, so that what began as a process of thinking about actual events and their significance turned into a process of thinking about the appropriate language into which I could put feeling into words to use Seamus Heaney's expression about his own work, in which words were put to work to become bearers of history rather than simply a private lyric utterance. I have reached for images in the larger literature, The Myth of Apollo and Marcias, a simile which worked well to express the sense of having language stripped away from me it became important to use figurative language not as ornament, but to make it meaningful in itself so that I could portray certain realities and express feelings according to my own independent viewpoint. At the heart of this was my conviction that history and oppression happen in a minutiae of our lives and that poetry could make them both emotionally intelligible. I enjoyed the long moments of concentration when my mind was focused on line length, on a sound of words, on creating the simile of words as capillaries. Keeping the mind occupied with putting the poem together gave me a respite from the anger I had felt at what had been done to us, and it felt good to put shape to the experience. But there is also the thrill of having somehow come through to the other side of the struggle where we could enjoy the articulation of clarity, of freedom.
0: Carmen, I hope we can take a pause there. Um, Because I think for the audience, this might be an interesting question. And in my conversations, I've heard you refer to the language of oppression multiple times. So could you define, how would you define the language of oppression?
1: So the whole basis of this course, Poetry and the Language of Oppression, is um, very much based on um, the last maybe 25 years, 30 years of work in English, but really taking the language of oppression as I see it and turning it into, into poetry. I don't think of the language of oppression as a national language. I wouldn't necessarily say that it has to be communist, minister in Europe, where it has to be, I don't know what political system in what country. I think it is its own its own um, register within any language, within any national language, and it's it's a language that is specifically used um, and sometimes designed if it's politically uh, manipulated, but specifically used in order to. Uh, compel a person or a group of people to accept living in a situation in which they are not free. And on the other hand, I think it's also the narrative that the oppressed person, that the abused person, gives um, himself or herself in order to rationalize staying in a situation in which... um, they, they're not free. So it's a narrative that keeps one in conditions that are unacceptable.
0: Can you recall, as you've sort of started to do here in this, in this bit of this excerpt from this lecture, the actual process that you started to undergo to unlock your experience of artistic distance?
1: So this is a very long process. It took many years to articulate this. So I've done a lot of work, solid critical work my, on my doctorate. I developed this, uh, this concept of artistic distance. It's called, I call the Poetics of Exile um, on uh, the relationship between Seamus Heaney and East European poetry in translation. And there I started noticing how people made it possible, people like Milos, like Mandelstam, like Brodsky, Herbert, uh, Heaney, how not getting involved into the political discourse itself or in a pain itself helped them achieve enough internal distance so that they could be observing the historical reality closer. It's a self-detachment. What I saw that they were doing is they were telling themselves, you're not the most important person in this, but you are the observer. You are the camera that is recording but you're not recording objectively either. You are recording because you have been touched by um, this upheaval. You're, you're recording because it's important for you, because you want to set the world right. If I were to tell you now about visiting my father in prison and how hard it was to be on the other side of the glass wall and uh, you know, me you know, begging the guards to let me touch him, And if I was shouting and crying, trying to explain, you wouldn't understand much of what I'm trying to say. But if I sat down and calmed myself enough so I can explain it to you, so you can see the image of that glass wall of my father with the chains on his hands and feet, shaved, and me on the other side begging the guard, you will see the full picture. It had happened in my own writing through the experience of writing. And that is because I take such joy of working with words. Naturally, like, you know, a painter would express something with the colors with the painting. A baker would have a relationship with the world by baking these wonderful loaves, you know, that that everything is a craft. So what I discovered in the process of sitting down over and over and over is just the joy of the craft, which also gave me um, an internal space where I was calm. So two things happened at the same time. One, it worked as a kind of therapy. You know, I was calmed. I was giving myself a respite from the suffering. On the other hand, that in itself became the basis of creating something which could be articulated as a poem with line endings, with imagery, with metaphors. And in this whole process, the incoherent suffering was being put into something that I can now say, this is a poem about crossing the Iron Curtain with my father. This is a poem about visiting my father to prison. This is a poem about the joy of words in two languages. It comes, it it, it took many, many years to, to, to get to that. But the whole time, you know, you think, all right, this is the material that I have. I have language, I have words. How do I use them? Where do I take them from? The next excerpt comes from um, a lecture on writing poetry in a non native language. And there I explore the relationship that I have with both languages Romanian, as the language which I chose to abandon and English, which is a language I chose to adopt and which has adopted me. Um, And I'm explaining the sort of um, how the languages have actually um, complicated each other and they have loved each other in my poetry all throughout the past 30 years. Now I turn to Romania as to a language that has become almost paradisical, Um, the language of childhood before... The political nightmare had happened. So, there has been a sort of closure with that, rather than the initial anger and rejection of the language because of the political oppression. So, I want to read a poem. It is a poem in which I tried to give the sense of how one national language is needed to explain another national language, and how, in that complicated relationship, one searches for the language of poetry, which can surface from both at the same time, as its own language. The names of things. Sunlight in a water bowl on a doorstep, then on a pond far from home, Swarele. Fire in the terracotta hearth, then in a pit outside a tent thousands of miles away, Fokul. My black sea lolling the shore, then dreams of sea, Waking cheeks with stinging salt. Mara. Air encircling the grapes outside the window, then gliding with a parachute above a heron. Ayarul. Soil exhaling after rain through gaps between cherry leaves, then crying dirty tears from roots of a fallen birch. Pamantul.
0: That poem seems like it's quite related to your lecture on poetry in between languages. Would you be willing to share an excerpt of that?
1: In writing directly in another language, there is nothing to translate. Sometimes I'm imprecise with the cultural connotation of words, where when I recreate certain experiences, where when I express new ones, or when I account for what it is that I'm feeling but I aim to be scrupulous about all the meanings the words can afford without betraying myself as too much of an outsider. I gravitate towards the confluence of languages, constantly reminded of what certain words meant to me in my native language. I sometimes have illusions that one day I will write the standard language of a native, but I know I never will, as my rhythms and sensibilities will betray that I lived the most important part of my life in another language. And I accept that not as limitation, but as a provocation to write till I think I can stand exactly where the two languages of my life meet and I can be understood.
0: Why does speaking another a f- a foreign language give you artistic distance? And what does your native language do that inhibits artistic distance
1: so in my case i was i was afraid that if i were to write in romanian even here if i were to publish them i would be understood by somebody who would continue to harm us which is the entirely truth because if i was publishing them in romanian it would have to be in romania it's, it's a psychological game that you know i've done with myself probably as a victim So then I figured out, if I write in English, I write in a language in which I have no, number one, I have no memory of oppression in English. And it's a language I choose, and it's brand new. Brand new, so I have a whole life in a language that I have no history in. Do you know, that's like being reborn. (laughs) It's heaven. Of course, at that point, I didn't realize that I'll have the problem of not speaking English. (laughs) And so that gave me enough distance that I had to sit down and and say, okay, how do I explain this in a coherent way to someone who doesn't know what a political betrayal is? And of course, as years go by, then you become less emotionally attached to your own pain because you accept it more. Um, You refer to it in a different way because you have superseded the the difficult moments. You know, you've outgrown it. Um, I've written an article called, well, a blog called um, Archival Identity, and it's about reading the um, secret police files in Romanian, in my native language, in uh, 2010 and 2013. That brought back all of that oppressive, oppressiveness, all of those fears all of those um, horrible circumstances under which we lived because I was reading Romanian for for a very long time, and then I had to translate some of those files to put them in my books and then later on to transform them into poems for my collection releasing the porcelain birds. So I've developed, uh, you know, this extra voice now in my writing, which is the voice of the um, secret police informers.
0: You've developed the voice like it's almost like a character.
1: Yes, in Releasing the Porcelain Birds, um, when I transformed the secret police files into poetry, that voice of the observer, the one who is trying to censor you, who is trying to shut you down, is coming into the poems. And, And it hasn't been deliberate. It's just been the act of translating the files and turning them into poetry. That voice has penetrated into my own voice. reopen a wound and then you have to accept that that wound actually will always that scar will always be there it's just learning to live with it and recognize that it is there rather than rebuilding yourself in another language and saying I've put it all behind and now I'm flawless It's, it's it's very different I've also rediscovered That going back to my earliest memories of Romania, the childhood memories about which I talked in my memoir, Bearing the Typewriter, and by the act of writing Bearing the Typewriter, I was able to go to the magical, lyrical, idyllic, beautiful dialect of my village that has been a source of strength and love for language in general, regardless of which language you speak, a resource for me. So now I'm able to have two Romanians in my mind simultaneously and an English language that is sort of beautifully engaging with both of them.
0: Let's go with that point between the two languages related to your memoir, Burying the Typewriter. You wrote the book while you were a fellow at Oxford after finishing your Ph.D. at that institution, is that correct?
1: Yes, and I was so lucky. I felt pregnant at Oxford. My husband and I decided we we'll would start a family because everything was so wonderful. So we thought, okay, let's start a family. The bigger the belly grew, the more um, I was singing Romanian songs to my belly. Um, But then at the same time, I was explaining to my Italian husband why we will not teach my son Romanian. And he was saying, yeah, but you're singing all these songs to your belly. Don't you think you ought to explain it? And then um, I I became friends with William Fiennes, who was one of the other fellows. And he was saying, no, 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 you must write your story. Um, You have to write your story. I wrote the book to explain to my son the best things about my childhood in Romania, and also how those things were taken away as a result of political oppression. What happened to our family, why we became immigrants. And also to give him a sense that it's not fine to be embarrassed to be an immigrant, because this was a complex that I was suffering through. You know, I was never an American, even though I got an American passport, I got a citizenship, and I earned my way into America and into, you know, highest education. I was never a pure American. <laughs> I was never really a Romanian anymore because we've been cast out of uh, Romania. And, and also Romanian immigrants are not very well viewed anywhere. It, it's a stereotype which is very annoying that you have to deal with. If you're an immigrant from anywhere, people will always find the examples of other immigrants from your country who have done horrible things. So there's this sort of stereotypes So I I had this complex of, you know, I'm always going to be an immigrant. I'm always going to have an accent. I'm never going to be as good as anybody else. So I thought, okay, I'll explain to my son all of this. You know, don't be ashamed to be an immigrant or an immigrant's son. But look how beautiful the life was before it was there. This is a resource. So then I also wanted him to be able to return to Romania and live there if he wanted to. And I also decided to write it in a voice of a child growing up because I wanted my son to read it. And I was interested in giving the sense of a child's experience of um, oppression rather than the moralizing adult who understood everything. The beauty of that is when I went back to the child that I was, I found all the joy that was there intact. So the reason that I was so lucky is I, I was able to tap into the best memories, which are the first part of the book, which I think is just the magical part of my life, and fully dive into that. Then in 2010, um, after a couple of years of um, writing letters to the Romanian government to give, to give me access to the declassified files, I received the first set of the files, which had corrected some of my memories— which had corroborated most of the dates, which had put pictures, for example, of the buried typewriter, which I was writing about, that I you know, saw my parents bury as a child. Um, so in a sense, it, the, the files did two things. One, it destroyed my childhood because they, they've, I learned from the files that my parents have been monitored. My father had been called to interrogations on a monthly basis while I had a happy childhood. And he wouldn't tell us. It, they, <clears throat> they added this layer of complexity that I didn't know it existed. And I'm so grateful that I didn't have that knowledge before I wrote the book because I was able to go into what I have experienced. I can keep this as a gift from God. You know, all these memories, um, I can have them forever. And then they could be in my book and I can show my book to everybody. You know, look, 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 this is my story. It's wonderful. It's wonderful because now it's a, different, it's a different thing altogether. I have too much knowledge now. Um, that gives me the, what I call an archival identity.
0: <laughs> Do I get the sense, did I read it in the book or did I read it somewhere else, that you weren't interested in writing a memoir because you want to be a poet? Was writing a memoir a <laughs> challenging process for you because you want to write poetry? And then as I read your memoir, you write poetry. Yeah. Throughout The way that you construct sentences, the way that you dabble in memories, the way that you remember, you write it very, very much like it's a, like an, just an extension of poetry with slightly different punctuation. That's right. <laughs> like, a, like a sentence.
1: That's what I did,
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, so can I, you talk about that? Was it, was it a struggle for you to write yeah, prose? Yes. So,
1: I mean, this brings us a bit into the residential college because I remember my, my tutor at residential college, Ken Michalowski, used to say, come on, Carmen, you should write some stories. You should write your story. And I said, no, 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 I just want to be a poet because I don't know how to write prose. You know, and, I, and so, yes, I resisted very much. So you know what I've done? <laughs> I took the short way out. I didn't know how to write a memoir. Um, of course, I read memoir all my life, but it's different from, from writing one. So I decided, why don't I just put everything in a chronological order, focus on the most beautiful or the strongest memories I have, and just write extended poems And punctuate them differently. So that's exactly what I've done.
0: (laughs) Oh, good. I picked up on it accurately. You did did
1: very well. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so I thought, OK, here, chapter titles. So so I was saying, uh, you know, the prose affords me a a story. So it's it's different. And it's better in a sense that I can actually get the details of the story that I cannot get in a poem without making it boring. But on the other hand, if I took each image or each important moment, and if I just treat it as an extended poem— then I can see the beginning and the end of the chapter. <laughs> 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 and it worked because, you know, it... It, um, it sure did. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not capable of really writing prose. Um, well, I can write criticism, but, you know, I've never written stories where, um, yeah, prose. So I thought, okay, I'll just, I'll just do this trick. And it, it worked really well. So um, I think you're the first one who notices that. Who is... <laughs> <laughs> because really it was was uh, you know how do I get out of this mess now? You <laughs> have to <So> start writing. <laughs> Reminiscing about the RC, it's been uh, a wonderful time in my life. I couldn't tell you how wonderful. So I've come here from Grand Rapids Community College as a transfer student, and um, I studied with Ken Mikulowski. And um, with Cindy Sowers, so I must say that I'm I remained grateful to Cindy for all the enjoyment of art that I'm that I'm you know taking everywhere I travel through all the museums, seeing all the paintings, and for the way she's put the the visual perspective into the literature because that that actually helped to shape my sense of imagery having the images of, of the art of the paintings in the back of your head, how those would work in poetry that would conjure the narratives. And with Ken, the tutorials, the one-on-one tutorials. But I lived in 252 Hinsdale, and, and um, I started here uh, to get uh, people together, and I um, created this Hermetic Poets troupe. So once every two weeks, we'd meet um, on my floor in 252 Hinsdale and workshop our poems. And it was there that I met a great friend who introduced me to Bob Dylan for the first time. So that's how I fell in love with Bob Dylan. On the other hand, Ken was introducing me to... Um, uh, Andrei Codrescu, who is uh, another Romanian poet, he made sure that you know I was part of the dinners and part of the conversations. This sense of caring for the students, this sense of I will I will take you where you need to go and I will help you beyond the class, that um, was very powerful for me. That kind of access to the human part of them, and also sort of looking after. You know my career, go and meet these people come and I'll introduce you to this person, you know. Um, you you know uh, read their books, make friends with with people. all of that has been very nourishing.
0: And can you remember what it was like for you? where you were on your what stage you were at in terms of your comfort of writing in English when you came to the RC and when you started taking classes in those tutorials where what was your English voice-like.
1: Oh, this is hilarious. I mean, so my English was still, uh, what should I say, was in a working phase because I had to take those English tests, those horrible English tests, in order to come into University of Michigan. So I was proficient enough by the academic standards to sort of understand, but really, I was <laughs> my English was very poor. Um, so Ken would find these... Um, horrible mistakes in my poems, words completely out of their place. And we would spend time laughing to tears in his office going, where did you find this? You know, I remember one was heart and hearth. So he was saying, hearth, let me explain what hearth is. And let me explain what heart is to you. How do you want to use it in this poem? You know, there's the, the misspelling, but it was such a change of that. And then I remember uh, sitting in um, in the classes of Professor Ralph Williams in his Shakespeare classes. And, um, of course, I would miss a lot of, you know, what he was saying because he was talking fast and he was very sort of... Um, performing, right? He was very performative in, in his delivery of the lectures. And I would shout, you know, please stop, I don't understand this. You know, 400 people in the auditorium. And, and you know, he gently and calm enough, he would stop and explain. This is what I meant to say. That um, Again, it was, it was very joyful. But yes, my English was at a point where I, you could see that I was really, really trying to express myself and I was stumbling along the way in the most hilarious ways. I was very, I was very blessed though to have friends who could laugh with me, and um, and who taught me the value of. I mean, to be like you know, bring Carmen to the party because she's going to say something funny for sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and so I was right there, you know, in the middle of the conversation. And also, I wasn't afraid to have people laugh at what I was saying because I was very conscious that I was speaking a language that wasn't mine. And, uh, and if it sounded funny, that was okay.
0: A language that wasn't hers. Well, since then, she literally got a terminal degree in English literature, so she can't say that anymore. Check out *Lilies From America, a compilation of her poems due out in September from Shearsman. I can't wait to read it. Thank you, Carmen, for spending such a luxurious amount of time with me during your visit and for appearing on the RC Podcast. The music on today's episode is called The Diving Horses by the artist Memory Palace. Subscribe to the RC Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your preferred app. This podcast is a production of the Residential College, a four-year interdisciplinary liberal arts program at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor, College of Literature, Science, and the Arts. The RC was founded in 1967 and has over 6,000 alumni all over the world. This is Robbie Griswold signing off.